Let me invite you to turn with me to Ephesians 2. As we look at this raising of the dead, from death to life for grateful service, Ephesians chapter 2. We come to a new section today, though it's not disconnected from the previous passage in which the beloved Apostle Paul waxed eloquent on the remarkable power of God that raised Christ incarnate from the dead and exalted him to his right hand. That's how we left chapter 1. Here we're looking at another resurrection of the dead. This is how God powerfully raised you from the dead if you're in Christ. This resurrection is due to union with Christ. In fact, we could have titled the sermon this morning as such. As death speaks of separation from the life of God and union with Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life. Now we... We sang a new Getty hymn this morning that commemorates faithfulness in in missionary enterprise. And I didn't realize that it was written for that purpose. I I listened while I was studying this week, and uh, I I thought that it might behoove us to introduce this this message with a, a missionary illustration. I had a friend the other day, I didn't know that the weather was so bad over Fiji Way, and so he was talking about praying for some missionary friends over that way. Well, years ago, James Calvert went out to the cannibal island of Fiji with the message of the gospel. The captain of the ship in which he traveled tried to talk him out of going. He said, you'll risk your life and all those with you if you go among such savages, he said. Calvert's magnificent reply was, we died before we came here. Death to self. You know, as we think about death, since that's in the text this morning, in that sense, it's, it's possible to be dead even when you're alive. I trust you haven't seen too many of those zombie movies where you've got walking dead people, but that's literally the picture that, inspired by God that the Apostle Paul gives us, walking dead people, born dead. Corey Ten Boom's life offers a modern example of this principle of walking dead people. Her remarkable story is told in the book, The Hiding Place. I know many of you have read it. Some have watched the biography. She lived with her family in Holland just before World War II broke out. The Nazi military machine was beginning to press in on European Jews like the jaws of a vice. Jews who had any chance of were fleeing Germany and other neighboring countries. But the German military machine was on the alert to capture any fleeing Jews. So in response, you had a an underground railroad that was formed among compassionate people to assist the Jews to escape. Corey Ten Boom's home was part of the underground system. Eventually, she and her sister were arrested, condemned to a German concentration camp for, for their part in assisting the Jews which were being exterminated. Her life in that camp was terrible beyond belief. If you've read the story, you know how bad it was, at least on paper. In any civilized country, not even animals would be legally treated the way she and thousands of other people in the camp were treated. Her sister, who was a weaker constitution, died in the camp. Though on any given morning when she awoke, she was breathing and her heart was beating. Corey herself 
was as good as dead. Only a short time stood between her and the gas chamber. And then one day, due to a clerical error, she was inexplicably freed. Snatched from the jaws of death, she was given her life back again. Winston Churchill once said that there's nothing quite so exhilarating as being shot at and missed. That must have been how Corrie ten Boom felt on that day. Death shot at her but missed. Scriptures point to the fact that we have not just been shot at, but we were indeed dead before Christ intervened in our lives in salvation. We've all been dead, spiritually speaking. But God's given new life, a second chance. While we were dead, we were helpless to respond to the gift of life until he brought us to himself and received a new spiritual life in Christ. So follow along as I read for us in Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 1. And notice how how blunt and like we're on the edge of our seats because there's no main verb introduced until until verse 5. It's intended to be as graphic and desperate of a deadly death condition as indeed these first few verses record it. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved." And raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God. Not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Beloved, let me invite you this morning to notice three astounding features of salvation before us on the text of Scripture that should bolster your service and revive your spiritual vitality and worship to our worthy God, if you're in Christ. If you're outside of Christ, that you would be led through, through the, the Spirit's influence in the text before you to cry out for Him to, for grace and mercy and salvation. So three astounding features of salvation we would peruse from, from Ephesians chapter 2. He's, he starts off with, with the condition that every person on the face of the earth is born into. You may be born physically alive, but spiritually You and I were dead, actually walking dead people. So you'll notice the first feature. Feature number one is our condition, verses one and two, a condition of deadness. Before Christ intervened and gave you a a willingness and a desire to come to God, caused you to want to repent and believe, notice that this is just a statement of reality. 
There's no, as I said, there's no main verb till, uh, till verse 5. So the Apostle Paul is intentional at being very abrupt. He wants to waste no time. And to get right into it, he states the pre-Christian status as dead. This is the best biblical metaphor for us to remember in our evangelism and introduce people to their condition without Christ. It is a state of spiritual deadness. Now, unfortunately... To smooth out the grammar, some translators, like uh, I was reading from my New King James this week, which is by my, uh, in my study area down by the wood stove, and both the King James and New King James, uh, right in verse 1 in italics, put, and you hath he quickened, because we can't wait till verse 5. Well, you got to wait till verse 5, because he doesn't say that yet. So we can't impart all the good news that he's got for later until we see the exceeding bad news that, uh, that spans three verses here. It, it, you know, so uh, you know, they do that. You know, we're not questioning motives. They do it to deal with the tension. But we, uh, we can't ignore how bad the bad news really is in this feature number one. So the condition is stated in verse 1, and then, and then later on it's going to be described in verses 2 and 3. But look, first of all, at what he states in verse 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Necrus speaks metaphorically of alienation, a good synonymous term. Alienation from the one who gives life, spiritual alienation. This, this is the inspired verdict of God himself recorded in his inspired, inerrant, and authoritative word. It's the same idea that Paul will use in, as he writes to the Colossians in Colossians 2.13. And in his letter to the Romans, he connects it to our father Adam in Romans 5.17, the head of the human race. And as you look at Genesis 2 and 3, you see the sin and death connection in that narrative there. It is a state that no amount of stimulation will do any good. No matter how much you poke and prod a dead corpse, it will not complain, it will not talk back to you. Natural man cannot, be, uh, cannot respond favorably towards God. Natural man doesn't receive the things of the Spirit of God. It's foolishness to man without Christ. He can't offer God anything pleasing to God because of his, his inherent corruption. Now, we're not saying... This is not a denial that uh, man can perform works of civil virtue. There's virtuous things that unbelievers do. And they can even conform outwardly to the law of God. Uh, a lot of times, they're in church houses... And uh, so they can conform outwardly to religion and outwardly to the law of God, but not motivated out of love for God himself and the standards that he set in his word. In sin, man lost the ability to incline himself to the things of God. He's morally dead, tainted by sin. And that's what Paul explains here about this deadness. You know, I, I noticed that this... Uh, plant needs some reviving this morning. It needs a, a drink of water. And so a lot of people look at this deadness as something that is alive but sick. No, Paul doesn't say that about our souls. He says you're not just, uh, uh, you're not uh, alive and well. You're not alive and sick. You are dead and depraved is what the whole host of Scripture teaches. And notice in, here in this verse, 
He said, dead in your trespasses and sins. Your trespasses, meaning, meaning to fall beside. It speaks of treachery and rebellion and wrongdoing, indicating a high accountability for our sins. We all transgress God's law. This term pictures a culpability, emphasizing strongly the deliberate act. God draws the line and we step over. That's our trespassing, his law. And in our sin, missing the mark, seems to speak more to, to uh, what sin is than what it does. So not only do we, do we step over and break God's law, even uh, if we look at it more uh, in, our, uh, in a passive state, just a condition of who we are, we are sinners. We commit sins because we are sinners. We don't become sinners because we sin. You know, by nature, we're sinners. This kind of answers the person who says, well, I don't mean to trespass God's law. Well, yeah, you do. You can't hit the target even if you tried or wanted to, nor could I. The problem is in the want to, to come to Christ. We didn't want to come to Christ. We didn't want God to be our king, our master, our Lord. It's used as a, as a comprehensive expression of everything opposed to God. We, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. It's always used in the New Testament of man's sin, which is ultimately directed against God. We see the repetition simply to, to underscore. So, so uh, uh, you know, trespasses and sins aren't at opposition with each other. They're, they're working hand in hand to show how desperate the condition is. So all unredeemed man's works, no matter how they might appear humanly good on the surface, are like filthy rags. You remember as Isaiah writes that in Isaiah 64, 6, that our our righteous deeds are like filthy rags in God's sight. That's why Paul later on invites those who are dead in trespass and sins to arise from the dead... And Christ will give you light. That's chapter 5, verse 14 of the same epistle. In other words, trade in your old bag of bones and decay for life in Christ. Where there's fullness of life, there's eternal life. There's life without end. And that, my friends, is what some of you need to do today. And not put it off till tomorrow because we're not guaranteed when our end date on planet earth is. We don't know when this spiritually dead soul is going to also experience a second death of the body and be put in the grave and face the judgment. And so we prepare today. So what Paul just stated in verse 1, he now describes in verses 2 and 3. From stating it to describing it. And notice, notice really how uncontrol, uh, out of control our lives were. It's more so than we knew. As we were controlled by three, if you want to mark these down in your bulletins, three things that uh, were controlling our lives rather than us. Number one, he mentions in the next verse, verse two, we, as we were walking according to the course of this world or the age of this world, that's used in a theological sense of people who are organized in their opposition against God. This is a God-hating world order. 
a world, uh, you know, hum- humanity's values and humanity's standards apart from God. These are the, the fortresses that Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians 10 that uh, imprison people, that must be smashed. So we were controlled by the age of this world. We were controlled, second of all, by the ruler of the realm of the air. Notice uh, again what he says there in that same verse. The, the prince of the power of the air. This is the second powerful influence that we were opened up to without Christ. And by calling him uh, ruler or prince of the air, Paul uses the main designation of Satan that John uses in his gospel. And it's a fitting thing that he's ruling, the, the, the ruler of, of the air uh, for this invisible spirit world that we are blind to. We're oblivious to the spiritual dealings going on all around, all around us. We're controlled by the age of the world, the ruler of the realm of the air, and notice as well about this spirit who's now working in the sons of disobedience, that uh, according to verse 3, we were formerly living in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. So the lusts of the flesh were controlling us. The natural man without the Holy Spirit and Christ to help conduct his life walks in anger, walks in wrath, walks in malice and blasphemy and filthy language and lying. That's why the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, those who are are slaves of fornication and uncleanness and passion and evil desires and covetousness as recorded in Colossians 3, 5 and following. That was our walk before God's gracious and sovereign intervention. Notice uh, notice just uh, just here in in Ephesians. In, In verse 1, we were dead in sin. Verse 2, we're influenced by Satan. Verse 3, controlled by lust and under God's wrath. If you were to skip down to where we're not going to get to today in verse 11, we're informed that we were pagans without God. Verse 12, we were separated from Christ. And in that same verse, verse 12, we were without hope in this present world. Do you remember those days? being without hope because we were without Christ. You know, if you wanted to cross-reference a text that we've looked at in the last several months, we were going through Titus, weren't we? Titus 3.3 is another description of our unredeemed state. And notice that last, you know, one last detail before we leave these first few verses. Among whom we all... Right there in verse 3. Among whom we all. Paul particularly had had in mind the many Gentile readers, Gentile Christians, those who had come to faith in Christ outside the covenant people of God. Now he admits that the Jewish believers, those who had come to Christ, were in no better position. They too, just like the Gentiles once lived an earth-bound life in the grip of sin. So, so he helps us start seeing that uh, Gentiles had no monopoly on such sinful impulses. 
Jews uh, of that day, the, to- the time that uh, Paul was writing, had a, had a keen concept on evil inclinations. And this inner propensity towards evil. The rabbis held this uh, at the time of Paul that the only way to battle them was to study Torah. You, to, to deal with these evil propensities. For Paul, it, it's slightly different. For Paul, the new covenant blessings of the Holy Spirit and God's empowering presence were central for overcoming those lusts of the flesh that we once held bondage to. But it's, again, it's not apart from the law of God. God's power, the divine energy working his plan that we read about in chapter 1 and verse 11. And verse 12 of chapter 1 that would be to the praise of his glory. Having believed, we were sealed by the Spirit given as a pledge of our... Now we've got the, the internal power source of the Spirit of God, the enabler of the Christian life to put off that which once controlled us and to put on righteousness. You see, the Jews had a, had a rich heritage of being chosen by God to display His glory to the nations. Many of those were religious people. And even uh, many of them had saints for parents. Parents who did like our Generations of Grace Sunday School curriculum exhorts parents to do, to tell to the generations to come the praises of the Lord, Psalm 93, or excuse me, 73. So it doesn't matter if you're religious and doing religious things if you've not been given life through Christ alone. They account for nothing. The heart of the matter is the heart. Has your your heart been changed? Has it been transformed from a heart that was once cold to God in rebellion and serving self to loving God above all else? Is that characteristic of your life? that true of you? You know, for an unbeliever, his highest law is his own desires. Flesh dictates, if it feels good and brings pleasure, why should I hold back? You know, whether, whether it's being shacked up with somebody you're not married to or fulfilling the desires from a bottle or buying all you can to fill this emptiness and this void inside or valuing what... what God didn't, doesn't value. So we find in these first three penetrating verses our desperate condition of deadness towards God. And so from that old position, he's reminding the saints in the second feature of newness in Christ, the work of God and salvation after we recognized our dead condition that he changed it. So if point one is is captivated up underneath the word dead. Verses 4 to 7, we're alive because of God's intervention. Praise God for that if you're in Christ. So in contrast to man's rejection of God, Paul sets forth God's gracious acceptance of man in Christ. He'd gone through a little side rail in contemplating the depth of our former depraved condition, dead towards God, controlled by everything but his kingdom. But now he returns to the discussion and and extends it. And he begins in verse 4 with those two astounding words, but God. 
but God, the most wonderful words in the Bible. Facing all this emptiness and treachery, faced with eternal conscious wrath of Almighty God for all of eternity, against the bleak and distressing plight of humanity, shines a brilliant ray of hope. Life, but God, He didn't leave you there. The God who is just to punish every treacherous one out of his presence is not just just, he is merciful. And to that we give him all the praise. I trust that you spend a little time studying that and trying to reckon in your own mind the just one being merciful. I pulled one off my shelf a couple of days ago uh, entitled Sinners in the Hands of a Good God by David Klotfelter where he's, he's seeking to reconcile divine judgment and divine mercy. It's so amazing, so astounding. That'll, that'll rise you, raise you to the heights of worship when you recognize that there is not one person that's going to heaven that deserves to be there. It's all a grace gift. And everyone that will uh, be citizens of eternal conscious punishment in hell are rightfully there to the justness of God. And so Paul says, but God, most wonderful words. And now that God is mentioned in the picture, what was bleak for three verses, we have the... uh, The subject of the whole section, the main assertion, he made us alive with Christ. He gave us life that is characterized without end. It's an an act of spiritual reviving by an act of his power. That same power that we left chapter 1 with, the power that raised Jesus from the dead and, uh, and exalted him to the right hand of the Father is the same power that gives life to dead people today. People are still being converted and brought to Christ. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead, as you recall Paul's prayer back in chapter 1, the third request he gives in that prayer, verses 18 through 20, is here's what he prayed. That the eyes of your heart might be enlightened to know the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. This was a sovereign act of his great grace. He shed his love abroad in our hearts so that my present state now is one of life rather than death. It is blessing rather than punishment. It is life with God in Christ rather than eternal death in the first Adam. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive with Christ. And he can't help but put in parentheses there, by grace you've been saved. He's going to tell us that again in verse 8. But to give the context of this life in Christ, it's all a grace gift of salvation. And he raised, verse 6, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly place. And this is a spiritual resurrection, a spiritual identity. Verse 6 is is a parallel statement to verse 5 as he clarifies the assertion. He raised us with him. Our new position is one of life, standing up erect rather than 
face down, dead. Seated us with him. So in contrast, when God butts into the picture, but God, verse 4, there was spiritual alienation. Now there's spiritual union with Christ. To be in Christ is to have everything. To be outside of Christ is to have nothing. He loved us, verse 4. He liberated us, verse 5. He lifted us, verse 6. What an astounding contrast. Those who were dead in trespasses and sins, which was verse 1, have now been made alive, verse 5. And we were following the ways of the world, being under the lordship of the ruler of the king of the air. That was verse 2. Remember how bad that was? And standing in stark contrast is being in relationship to Christ, seated with him in the heavenly realms, verses 5 and 6. God's wrath that we saw in verse 3 is balanced with his mercy, love, grace, and kindness in verses 4, 5, and 7. Beloved, the, 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 those, the, the saints of God that were, that were reading this letter for the first time were reminded that their former condition was children of wrath, paralleled with being saved by grace, verses 5 and 8. And that's true for you if you're in Christ. And you notice the purpose. Look at how, how verse 7 begins, so that. So, so we're introduced to the purpose. So why did God do this? He, he, he gave new life to dead sinners. Why did he do it? So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, that, that's a mouthful. That's a pregnant statement. He expresses the purpose of the whole design of salvation. All this, all this mercying from hell... This mercying from hell, this giving of life, this raising us and seating us with Christ is to express the purpose of demonstrating the surpassing wealth of His grace. We're trophies of His grace on display throughout the coming ages without end. As a matter of fact, uh, a translation I don't typically uh, point to as one of the the best word-for-word translations because it's not. The the New Living Translation... uh, translates the verse this way, so, that God, so God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us. You know, I'd add to that, uh, as we reflected on chapter 1 uh, a few weeks ago, that it's for the praise of his glory or the praise of his glorious grace. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace. Surpassing riches. Hooperbalon is that word for surpassing. Otherwise, it could be translated in, uh, uh, in our Bibles as immeasurable. It speaks of throwing over beyond to excel or to surpass. It is a superabundance. Back in chapter 1 and verse 19... We were told that God's power exceeds greatness. That's the term, hooperbalo. Later on in chapter 3, when we get there, chapter 3, verse 19, we're told that the love of Christ 
is the same. It is hyperbalo. It surpasses knowledge. Surpasses knowledge. And here in chapter 2 and verse 7, the riches of his grace and salvation are beyond measure. So not only has he exercised mercy by keeping us from hell that his righteous judgment demands, and he placed that judgment on his son. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be made the righteous of God in him. He, not only does he withhold just judgment, but he lavishes us with his grace, giving us what we don't deserve. That is true mercy and grace. What a way to, to set our time together, celebrating the Lord's table this morning. Salvation is for God's glory by putting on display His boundless mercy and love for the spiritually dead in sin, those who are shackled by themselves, their sin, and Satan. Point three of our message this morning unfolds a little bit of, uh, of point two. It moves from our, our... So we move from our condition in verses one through three of deadness to God's intervention, verses four to, to seven, to salvation's nature. So this, uh, the, the third point of the third word that would capture our thoughts is, is the nature of salvation, verses eight to ten. Uh, this is a summary of the nature of salvation, Notice what he says here. For by grace you've been saved through faith that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Contrast here in verse 9, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. In our day and age... There are certain documents that uh, there are affirmation and denial statements which I've found helpful. They're many times explanatory. Uh, uh, the affirmation and denial statements that we believe this and we deny that it means that. And those, those are very helpful at times. And so what we've got here in, in these verses are, are two explanations that conclude the section. Verse 8 gives an affirmation and a denial as one of the explanations. And verse 10 gives the final explanation about this salvation. The essence is to get the works on the right side in the chronology or on the equation. It's after salvation, not before. And it's motivated out of supreme gratitude based on the revelation of Scripture. We are saved by grace, through faith, nothing of ourselves. It's a gift. So you notice those key concepts that he talks about, grace and faith. It's nothing to do, uh, it is nothing I do, but what he has done. That is the emphasis. As the old hymn states, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. We're relying on Christ and his perfections, his perfect life lived, his satisfactory atoning death applied to our account. John Calvin, that great theologian, said, Faith brings a man empty to God that he may be filled with the blessings of Christ, unquote. So it's an overflow of grace. We live in response of adoring worship and grateful service. It's the only proper response. 
We don't understand the grace gift if our response is not adoring worship and grateful service. He reiterates, it's not of yourselves. Showing salvation does not have its source in men. Salvation has its source in God himself. So, possibly to better portray this in our evangelism, evangelicalism should stop using some of the phrases like letting Jesus in your life, like we, like we are actually in control of the door, uh, as if we're the sovereign one, or asking Jesus into our hearts, whatever that means, and changing our lingo a little bit to be more of a biblical phraseology, like we, we find repentance, we find that we're to surrender to his, his lordship. In the previous chapter, back in Ephesians 1.13, in him also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed. Talk about believing in Christ, trusting in him. It's not our contribution. It's all what he has done, not what we do. Because if there's anything of what we would do, there would be what? There'd be boasting. And so he follows that up in verse 9. Not a result of work, so that no one may boast. There's so many ways that this uh, phrase could, could play out. How about the big numbers games that so many are wrapped up in? You know, you, you see sometimes, uh, how many salvations and baptisms did you record in your ministers years of church? Or, uh, uh, you know, so often on uh, you know, missionary newsletter, we've got to talk about how many, how many converts we, we won to Christ. Well, how do we know until we see if there's fruit of regeneration in their lives? Or how about the marketing schemes that are employed by, by pragmatic ministries to these, these growth strategies? Or, or how about man-centered evangelism that appeals to fallen man right where he's at, that leaves him there? You just kind of add Jesus to your life and you keep all your other stuff. Stop boasting of your wisdom. Stop boasting of your might. Stop boasting of your riches. Jeremiah's got that great reminder in Jeremiah 9.23. Doesn't he? Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the rich man boast of his riches, or the mighty man boast of his might, but let him who boasts, boast that he understands and knows me, saith the Lord. That you're rightly related to the king of the universe. And that instead of being your judge, he's your master and friend that sticks closer than a brother. So none can point with with pride to personal accomplishments in the realm of salvation. God's done it all. Not even half a percent left for us to accomplish because we had boasted that half a percentage of what we accomplished. Boast of his great mercy. Boast of his grace. Boast of the privilege to serve. It's all to the praise of His glory, Ephesians 1.12. And notice that th- though works cannot merit God's favor, they do show forth love and obedience to His command and plan. They are part of it. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Again, as unbelievers, some of us were relying on our innate goodness, and you know how good that got us, you know, and our, our religiosity, and uh, again, we're reminded that uh, it's, it's foolishness, it's, it's filthy rags in God's sight. 
But when we've been redeemed by grace, we've been mercied by God. It was not just to save your soul from hell that was part of the eternal foreordination of God, but the works that resulted from it. You remember one of our favorite passages that uh, many of you have committed to memory, Romans 8, 28 and 29, that we know that, all, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also had predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. God saves us just as we are. He doesn't leave us that way, though. He conforms us to the image of His own beloved One. James rightfully says in the second chapter of his epistle that faith without works is, is, a, is a dead faith. It's a non-saving faith because it's alone. You remember the good soil of Matthew 13? Jesus is telling the parable. And uh, there's a lot of responses as the good news is sown far and wide to the world. The saving faith of the good soil bears fruit, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Don't just tell us you've got Jesus. Show and, and testify of how radically He's changed your life and give testimony to that fact. There ought never be an opportunity in a prayer and praise service to not testify of the grace of God in our salvation. Show forth your repentance from sin, your genuine humility and devotion to His glory and continual prayer and selfless love, separation from the world, spiritual growth, obedient living, a hunger for His Word. And as, as we're diligent to make our call and election sure, developing those spiritual graces in our lives through, through uh, the, the resident spirit's enablement, these are all characteristics of newness in Christ. So are the fruit of the Spirit. Our walk, which used to be characterized as the bleakness that we already looked at, where we were working as sons of disobedience, now our walk, our lifestyle, our conduct, our entire worldview, our values, our response, our activity, our speech, our thoughts, our desires are different because we're in Christ. We're alive with Him. We are raised with Him. We bear a new identity. So please, don't, don't delude yourself into thinking that you're a Christian if your walk isn't transformed. Contrary to the life before Christ, a, a walk of deadness ruled by Satan and your own lusts. There's a true difference internally and externally between the two. God sanctifies those whom he saves so that salvation and sanctification are inextricably linked so that we're commanded to work out this salvation knowing that it's God that works in us. So as we continue to prepare our hearts for the Lord's table, meditate on that little parenthesis he gave us back in verse 5. By grace, you've been saved. He doesn't save it till verse 8. Meditate on that. This conveys the unmerited favor of God, that he's lavished his grace 
by providing redemption, forgiveness of sins, and revealing the mystery. In Pauline thought, one of the, one of the greatest needs of humanity is to be spared from the eschatological wrath of God. That is man's greatest need. Death's coming. Judgment is sure. Flee to Jesus. He's going he's gonna to pour out his wrath. And, you know, we, we were reminded this morning in Genesis 9, weren't we, that God will, will never again flood the earth and destroy all mankind by a flood. But Peter reminds us in, in his second epistle, don't carry on like, thing, you know, uh, like everything's going to go on with, like they are. Because there's going to be uh, a meltdown, an implosion of planet earth. It's going out by fire next time. He's going to pour out his wrath in full measure. And the good news for believers is that those who are justified shall be saved from God's wrath. That's Romans 5, 9. That ought to sound familiar. I think we were in Romans last week, weren't we? The good news for believers is that we're saved from the wrath to come. So currently, if you are saved, you already possess this deliverance which is yet to take place. Not only the future, but in the present, as he currently reveals his wrath on unbelievers. You look at Romans 1. Unbelievers are suppressing the truth of God and righteousness. They've exchanged the truth for a lie. And he's constantly manifesting a degree of his wrath on mankind. When he, when he abandons sinful man to themselves and their sin. But us who have, have experienced and continue to experience so great a deliverance, it gives us a bright outlook. In spite of a rebellious culture that we live in, in spite of the, the gray times we live in, we glory in our Redeemer. It doesn't matter what our stock market and mutual fund portfolios do as they plummet. We'd like to have a retirement, wouldn't we? But in spite of it even being an election year, which is insecure, and we have no idea who's going to be in the Oval Office... In spite of the hostility of a culture that hates God's lordship. And in spite of the falling away of many who inhabit church houses who end up falling away because they never were truly born again. We can glory in our Redeemer and our great salvation and the deliverance that's once and for all. So feature number one was our condition of separation or deadness, the best biblical metaphor we could go back to time and again. Feature number two, God's intervention when he united us with his spirit and gave us life through his son, his son who accomplished it all, what was left for us to believe, and he even gave us that to respond in saving faith. And feature three, this nature of salvation that has been affected by grace, it's been apprehended by faith, so that we're working in our worship and our service out of gratitude. That's the only true response. Because he's graced and mercied us, we cannot help but be respond so. It evokes spontaneous response. Would you pray with me as we go to the Lord for his table? Father, it's hard to think of a sharper contrast than what we see in Ephesians 2 of death to life, from the sentence of your intense anger to the experience of incomparable love, from a life controlled by various forces 
to a life now sustained by the grace of God. So yes, Lord, we glory in our Redeemer, your own beloved Son. And as we come to the Lord's table, we come in a sense of unworthiness. We come in a way in which we have sought to be faithful to confess our sins, knowing that you're faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We've sought to have not only our fellowship and communion with you uninhibited, but our communion with fellow believers rightly reconciled as well. So, Lord, we partake in his worthiness, the worthy one, the Lord Jesus. We give you all the praise for accomplishing for us what we could not do and sparing us of the death that we deserved. We pray, Lord, for the many who gather with us regularly who have not come all the way to Christ. Might your spirit use these truths to sink into their hearts and to convict them of their sin and lead them to repentance and faith. We think of those this week that we'll have sovereign opportunities to talk to about Christ and the good news and the cross. Help us to think clearly of a good segue into the gospel message, offering them hope and salvation in Christ and Christ alone. So, Lord, as we take of the crackers and the juice, might they be a fresh memorial for us of the one who was crushed by the Father, the one in whose death you were satisfied. We partake in his worthy name. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen.